the U.S. bishops call out President Biden for misrepresenting their position and the Holy Father's on tax-funded abortion, while a U.S. cardinal is pushing for what he calls radical inclusion of marginalized groups in the church. Bishop Joseph Strickland of Tyler, Texas, will weigh in. The World Over begins right now. Now, Raymond Arroyo. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. If you have a question or a comment, you can send me a tweet. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Let's begin. Pope Francis and other religious leaders are calling for the decriminalization of homosexuality across the globe, signaling what many believe to be a relaxation of church teaching. Meanwhile, a high-ranking U.S. cardinal is calling for what he describes as radical inclusion of LGBT and divorced and remarried Catholics and other so-called marginalized groups in the church. Also this week, the U.S. bishops issued a strong response to President Biden's suggestion that they're okay with taxpayer-funded abortion. Here to separate fact from fiction is Bishop Joseph Strickland of Tyler, Texas. Your Excellency, thank you for being here. I want to start with this controversy surrounding remarks made by President Biden, suggesting that the U.S. Catholic bishops are somehow accepting of taxpayer-funded abortions. EWTN's White House correspondent Owen Jensen posed this question recently. Catholic bishops are demanding that federal tax dollars not fund abortions. No, they are not all doing that. So this week, the head of the U.S. Bishops' Conference, Archbishop Timothy Broglio, issued this statement. He writes, the Catholic bishops of the U.S. are united in our commitment to life and will continue to work as one body in Christ to make abortion unthinkable. As the Holy Father, Pope Francis, has said, it is not right to do away with a human being, however small, in order to solve a problem. It is like hiring a hitman. Uh, Bishop Strickland, your thoughts on President Biden's obvious mischaracterizations of the U.S. bishops, as well as the Pope himself, um, who uh, on this instance was very clear and has been. Uh, thank you, Raymond. Um, I think part of this is just the reality that so often President Biden isn't clear, and he says things that can later be proven to be inaccurate. And I, I'm so glad that Archbishop Brolio spoke up. I spoke up, and a number of bishops have, to just say that isn't the reality. As a conference, we're very clear that the federal funding of abortion of, as Pope Francis has said very clearly, murder of an unborn child is simply not something that we um, allow or would in any way tolerate. Bishop, uh as a self-professed church-going Catholic who also happens to be the U.S. president, Joe Biden is in some ways the most influential Catholic in the country, if not the world. How can the church leadership respond to what it seems to be here, a challenge by his example and word to your authority, to the bishop's authority? 
Well, again, I'm glad that Archbishop Broglio, a newly elected president of the USCCB, spoke up because we need to do that. And again, Raymond, as I've emphasized all through these controversies, for the sake of Joe Biden himself, and as you point out, he is a voice that many Catholic and not would say, well, the president calls himself a devout Catholic, so he must be representing what Catholics believe. In so many areas, mm -hmm. he's simply not. And as bishops, we need to be clear that Joe Biden can claim whatever, but he needs to put his actions in line with his words. And very often, that's not the case. Hmm. We're seeing a rise in vandalism and attacks on churches, uh, crisis pregnancy centers. Since Roe was overturned, over 100 recent incidents have been reported. Now, the federal government seems to be very slow, Bishop, in investigating these attacks. Are the feds doing enough? And why do you think protecting churches and these crisis pregnancy centers is such a low priority? Well, I think very clearly uh, the president and the Democrat Party are are not in line with what the church proclaims and the sanctity of life. And it, it seems that they, especially President Biden, he is more aggressively than ever pushing for federal opening up of, of options for abortion. I mean, things like the... Um, VA hospitals mm. offering abortion because they're under, I guess, the 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 federal um, mandates, and so the the aggressiveness there is clearly um, there's a a lack of belief in the sanctity of life among these leaders, and that's why it's such so important that we are very clear about Joe Biden as president because his actions are simply out of line with Catholic teaching. Hmm. Uh, and, and we should underscore uh, the federal government and the Justice Department used the full force of that office to prosecute that Mr. Hawk uh, a few months ago, who was really just defending his son outside an abortion uh, clinic. And um, it turns out he was, he was exonerated this past week. But uh, they don't seem to move with that alacrity or force when it comes to these attacks on churches, which would seem to my eye to be hate crimes. I mean, these are religiously motivated attacks and, and crimes. Absolutely. There's, there, there's evidence of a clear bias there that should not be tolerated. Hmm. I want to move on to another big story, uh, Bishop, this week. Pope Francis has joined Presbyterian and Anglican leaders in denouncing, uh, the, or rather calling for, the decriminalization of homosexuality worldwide. The three Christian leaders spoke on LGBTQ rights during a rare joint airborne news conference on the way back from South Sudan, where they took part in a three-day ecumenical visit. And the Pope says, to condemn someone like this is a sin. Criminalizing people with homosexual tendencies is an injustice. People with homosexual tendencies are children of God. God loves them. God accompanies them. Bishop Strickland, what do you make of these um, comments and the ecumenical gesture by Francis, done, by the way, on his way back from Africa? Is this going out to the peripheries, or is it an attempt to remake them? Well, it, it's an attempt, or it, 
I guess, Raymond, what's troubling to me is too often in these airborne conferences that Pope Francis gets involved in, I know he wants to be available to the people, mm -hmm. but he says confusing things. And the church has been very clear that having an orientation of homosexuality or whatever orientation a person has is not uh, immoral. It's simply the state of how that person is. It's our actions that where the morality or lack of morality kicks in. And I think it, it gets very fuzzy. And the, the whole issue of the decriminalization of homosexuality is in this country, I don't know the, the history, but I know for many years it hasn't been criminalized. I guess there are countries where it still is, but that really is is mixing issues and it, it, it's confusing to people. Um, I think we need to be very clear about what the teach, church teaches with morality. God loves all of us, loves us even as we sin, even in the act of sinning. God doesn't stop loving us, but because he loves us, he calls us to turn from sin. That's one of the first things his son said when he enters into the stories of the gospel is repent and believe in the good news, believe and live the gospel. Mm -hmm. So that repentance is something we've always got to emphasize mm -hmm. because that, that's where it gets hard. Yeah. All of us need to change and to turn from sin. And there's too much of a tone that we hear that don't have to change, just be embraced by God's love. That's not God's love at all. God yeah. hates sin. He loves us, but he hates sin. Yeah. Uh, also this week, uh, San Diego Cardinal Robert McElroy wrote a piece in the Jesuit publication America Magazine, and in it, he urged what he calls radical inclusion of LGBT persons and other marginalized groups in the church. Here's what he had to say on the Jesuitical podcast. Listen. On the question of the distinction between, um, uh, you know, activity and orientation, uh, the point I was trying to make in the article was God's embrace of LGBT uh, people like the church's embrace, should be whether they're active or not. It, that, that, should not be, uh, that should not determine whether we seek to include people, reach out to them, uh, look on them as fellow strivers with strengths and weaknesses and things, areas where they're doing well. So accompaniment seems to be the goal here. Uh, McElroy also mentions in the podcast, and this is where things get tricky, uh, that the words intrinsically disordered as regards homosexual acts, should be stricken from the catechism. One of your brethren, uh, Archbishop Sam Aquila, uh, wrote the following. According to his eminence, the church categorically discriminates, but did not Jesus himself put demands on his disciples, which distinguished them from those who did not respond to the radical and costly call of the gospel? Uh, Bishop, there seems to be a clear movement at the very highest levels of the church to remake church teaching on sexual morality, especially where homosexuality is concerned. Is this a new revelation of the Holy Spirit, and is it even possible? Well, as St. Paul says very clearly, don't accept false gospels. And according to what the Catechism says, a lot of this is a false gospel. Um, I think we, we have to be very careful. We need the truth. And Jesus Christ is truth incarnate. 
and he has called us away from sin to include whether people are actively sinning or not. Um, it, it, it's a travesty in my belief, and it, it really isn't love. It isn't really embracing that person. If we leave people where they are and say, oh, well, we just want to welcome you, but don't change your life. That isn't what Jesus Christ said, and it leaves people walking a dark path. And I've heard from too many people that that dark path does not have a happy ending unless people wake up and see the light again. Yeah, well, you, you and people can't criticize um, Cardinal McElroy for not being consistent because he includes uh, women and divorced and remarried Catholics without annulments as part of this marginalized group when he talks about sexual morality, uh, which, you know, sort of a big question mark pops up, certainly in my mind. Um, are you then saying holy matrimony doesn't have the same weight or importance or that you can continually enter into uh, holy matrimony and it's good every time yeah, and the church sees it that way and that relationship is somehow uh, holy, blessed, good um, because it's love. Well, and I think, Raymond, I believe that we are in a time of a real deep confusion and sadly, even within the church in significant ways, we seem to have forgotten what love really is. And it's all based on feelings that come and go. Real love is to desire the good of the other. And in that context, when someone is in a sinful lifestyle, to desire the good of that person is to call them away from it. No, we don't stop loving them if they refuse, but we to truly love is to call people to the good. Mm. And it it's as if we don't really believe in what the good is. Jesus Christ is truth and goodness incarnate. We have to look to him. Yeah. Uh, Cardinal McElroy also raised women's roles in the church, including female deacons. There are certain provisions of canon law which, which uh, don't allow women and, frankly, lay people as a whole to do certain things that they're eminently qualified to do. That's an easy fix. That has nothing to do with doctrine. The, the diaconate is a harder one because that's a, a long tradition. There's a big question to what degree in the early church did women uh, undertake the role or were they entrusted with the role of being deacons in the early church? There's a lot of evidence which indicates they were. So it's not the same problem you have with having women priests in the church because it looks clearly like there were women who were doing the work of deacons and were uh, ordained in various ceremonies. So, so it's easier to do that. Bishop Strickland, I've asked this question many a time. Isn't the, the question of ordination of women a closed issue? Well, for John Paul II, it was. Uh, I think he, he made it very clear that it was closed. And really, Raymond, I think even more broadly in our society today than just in the debates in the Catholic Church, I think we've got to be very careful about a further erosion of masculine and feminine roles. God made us male and female. And the more we blur that, and I mean, society is, is broken because 
We've forgotten that God made us male and female, and people are demanding all the time. They don't want to be considered binary. And all of this that isn't based in the truth, it's not based in the, the just natural law, in the basic truth that is self-evident if we're living in this world. And I think it's very dangerous for the church, even with some of her debates, to mm-hmm. further denigrate the wonderful role of the feminine in the church that doesn't have to totally match the masculine role. They need to be different mm-hmm. and distinct and complementary, just like in marriage. And if we begin to blur that even within the church, I think it just feeds this drastically broken society yeah. that we're living in, where too often people really have no idea who they are because they're so disconnected from the loving God yeah. who created them. And it's just a, a dystopian world that is harmful to people. Well, and this question of female deacons, uh, Pope Francis has opened up the discussion. He had two commissions that he's appointed to look into this, um, a historical commission and more recently a theological one. The, the, I, I just read uh, an entire thesis from one of the uh, members of that theological commission who said, look, here's what we found. They were basically these women that are called deaconesses in the Gospels. They were basically ladies-in-waiting who assisted a bishop baptizing women when full immersion was necessary so the bishop wasn't handling the women, if you were, for modesty's sake. That seems to be the extent of their role. Now they're trying to extend it and, and, and turn it into something else. But historically and theologically, that seems to be all there was. Uh, your thoughts before we move on. Well, I certainly don't claim to be a, an expert in the history. But again, I think we need to treasure the roles that we have that have been established for more than a thousand years and to, um, to really be very careful that we don't try to dismantle more. And, and I'm glad that the, the history that has been studied is reflecting mm-hmm. that basic truth. And we need to we need to enhance that rather than diminish it. But before we go, I have to ask you about the traditional Latin Mass and the restrictions placed upon it by Pope Francis in uh, that particular legislation he released, uh, Guardians of the Tradition. Uh, an unnamed bishop was sent a letter by the Holy See, which is now circulating on social media, and it orders him to rescind a dispensation that he had extended within his diocese to permit the celebration of the Latin Mass in a parish. It appears, if you, if you believe what's in this letter, that bishops must now petition the Vatican directly for um, permission to celebrate the Latin Mass in parishes. Your thoughts on this, and isn't the, the, the liturgy within a diocese, the purview of the bishop and under his authority. Yes, it is, Raymond. And even within the motu proprio that addressed uh, some of those issues, uh, traditionis custodis, it says that, that it's ultimately the bishop's decision and that then it, it, it gets confused. And I, I think we that's another area that we need to really enhance our understanding of what the the role of a diocesan bishop is. Mm-hmm. We are successors of the apostles. I'm in a small diocese in Northeast Texas, but it's my responsibility 
to be that successor of the apostles. And there's a lot of responsibility and autonomy mm. built into that, certainly with allegiance to the the bishop of Rome, the pope, sure. but also with understanding the integrity of that role of the apostle, just going back even to the original 12 who went out at the mandate of Jesus Christ into the world, that same mandate is what is given to a bishop for a certain area of the church, a diocese or archdiocese, and we have to really understand that more deeply. Hmm. We're not some sort of corporate body. We are a group of individual uh, successors of the apostles, and that's a tremendous responsibility, but it gives us the ability to guide our flock looking to Christ for that guidance for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I just, I have to tell you, I don't understand um, the fixation with this ancient liturgy, uh, which, which, you know, has served the church for millennia now, um, suddenly becoming something that's not only dirty, but needs to be stamped out. I don't understand that. Uh, and when well, that comes I, from the highest I, offices in, in Rome, it does confuse the laity. They scratch their heads, particularly those who, who find nourishment in it and spiritual uh, foundation, a spiritual grounding, if you will, in the Mass uh, and the sacrality of it. I, I don't understand why it's suddenly become criminal, criminal, to, to celebrate that Mass or, or uh, attend it. I'll give you the last Yeah, word. Raymond, uh, I think that especially in our time, any valid liturgy that brings Jesus Christ, body and blood, soul and divinity to us, we need to promote the celebration of the, the great variety of liturgies. I think there are 22 different rites mm-hmm. or, or in the Roman Catholic uh, Church, and we need to, to, to treasure that and not it really doesn't come down to either the Latin Mass or the Novus Ordo in the vernacular. There are many different, the Maronite Rite, uh, there, mm-hmm. there are many different opportunities, and I think all of it needs to focus on Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. our Lord and Savior, coming to us in word and sacrament. Bishop Strickland, we will leave it there. Thank you so much for your insight. We'll talk to you in the days ahead. Thank you. Thanks, Raymond. This week marks the 60th anniversary of the opening of the Second Vatican Council, a council used to justify so many of the changes we've seen during the reign of Pope Francis. What was the original intention of the council? And why does Vatican II remain so deeply contested in the Catholic Church today? Joining me now to discuss this and much more, senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center and author of the new book, To Sanctify the World, The Vital Legacy of Vatican II, George Weichel joins us. George, thanks for being here. In your introduction, you write that, quote, the second ecumenical council of the Vatican, Vatican II, in the familiar shorthand, was the most important event in the history of Catholicism since the Council of Trent responded to the various Protestant reformations of the 16th century. How so, George? Raymond, Vatican II was the Church's attempt to reckon with a new situation, a modern world that had become simply irreligious, not pagan. Paganism is full of religiosity, however odd or crazy. 
the modern world was becoming increasingly irreligious, and the wiser spirits in the Catholic Church, including Pope St. John XXIII, knew that the Church had to rekindle its Christ-centered mm -hmm. faith in order to respond to that with a new sense of evangelical urgency and missionary energy. Yeah, it, it was a pastoral council, though. How is that more important than the ones that preceded it, that touched on doctrine and uh, to clean up heresies? I mean, those were pretty weighty and important councils as well. I think this distinction between a doctrinal council and a pastoral council is ill-judged, Raymond, and I don't even use it in the book. Uh, Vatican II no, had issued two dogmatic constitutions, one of which affirmed the reality and binding authority of divine revelation over time, which is precisely what is at issue in Germany today. And the second on the church offered both Catholics and the entire world a richer doctrinal view of what the Catholic Church is. So there was serious teaching at Vatican II. George, in his opening address, uh, Pope John XXIII, when he opened the council, um, said that its greatest concern must be the more effective and complete presentation of, quote, the sacred deposit of Christian doctrine. How did the documents, uh, Deo Verbum, uh, Lumen Gentium, how did they address that challenge? That opening address of John XXIII's is, I believe, the best prism through which to read the entire Council. Uh, we speak about interpreting the Constitution of the United States through its original intention or original meaning. It's important mm -hmm. to understand what the original intention of John XXIII was for the Council in order to understand its documents. And the original intention was not so much to change the church as to Christify the world. And to do that, the church had to evolve, develop its way of proclaiming the gospel, but it was the same gospel. And the notion that uh, the Second Vatican Council was summoned to reinvent the Catholic Church is both a fundamental misunderstanding of what councils do and a very bad misunderstanding of the solid doctrinal teaching of the Constitution on Divine Revelation, God does speak to the world and we can hear that word, and the teaching of the dogmatic Constitution on the Church, Lumen Gentium. The Church is the template, or as the Council put it, the sacrament of the unity of the human race. Mm. If it was so definitive, Vatican II I'm talking about, and so seismic, George, why are we seeing these debates over core doctrinal issues that we're seeing today? Why are we seeing them continuing into 60 years later? Uh, those debates, Raymond, as you and I have discussed, I think, on several occasions before, actually mm. began within the Second Vatican Council itself. And they reflected divisions within both the episcopate and, and also uh, in a very sharp way within the world of Catholic theology. The important point to grasp today, I think, is that the living parts of the world church, whether we're talking about in North America or sub-Saharan Africa or what shoots of life there are in the church in Western Europe or Latin America, the living parts of the world church are those that have embraced the authoritative interpretation of Vatican II by John Paul II and Benedict XVI 
and the dying parts of the world church, Germany, Belgium, the Netherlands, mm. etc., are the ones who are still trying to make this failed project of Catholic light, reinvented Catholicism mm. work. Catholic light leads to Catholic zero. That's the empirical fact that should uh, drive this conversation into the future. Yeah, and I want to get back to that in a moment, because that's a crucial point you make about the spirit of Vatican II and the letter, and then the, the, the definitions under the last two pontificates. But regarding the liturgy, George, in your book, you write, in the liturgy, the Council Fathers argued the church was most itself, and the experience of liturgy ought to be, brought more directly into the church's theological self-understanding. A renewed, liturgically centered and vibrant church would, the liturgical movement's leaders believed, both deepen the conversion of the church's people of Christ and help bring the leaven of the gospel to the world. Did it work, George? I'm not talking about the letter of the documents, which call for the preservation of the Latin and uh, pride of place for Gregorian chant, but did the reformation of the liturgy, if you will, have the intended effect? It's had the intended effect in the living parts of the world church, but we certainly went through a silly season in which a lack of liturgical discipline really eviscerated the intention of the council in calling for an organic liturgical reform that had already begun in the 1950s. The Second Vatican Council did not invent the idea of an evolved, reformed Roman rite. Pius XII began that process with the reform of the Holy Week liturgy in the 1950s. Uh, I think today we're coming back to center, although I regard the recent decree from Rome, Traditionis Custodes, as a serious mistake because the availability of the older rite was helping the newer rite become more what the Second Vatican Council intended it to be. Mm -hmm. uh, would you say we're a holier people today? I mean, how did the shape of the Constitution on sacred liturgy, um, uh, uh, why, do you, why do you think it didn't take hold, I guess, is the better way to frame this? The, because the, when you read it today, George, it's so clear. Uh, it, it, they want more participation, but they didn't mean for a dislocation of the Mass, and certainly not a suppression of the Latin Mass, which we're hearing from Rome today. Raymond, I, my view is that a lot of our traditionalist friends are a bit too pessimistic about all of this. Uh, I see holiness all around me in my parish uh, every Sunday. Uh, I see holiness whenever I attend Mass throughout the world. Uh, the sacraments have immense power, and we should remember that, even as we mourn the reduction of too many expressions of the liturgy into mm -hmm. the self-expression of the celebrant. That was the single biggest mistake in the implementation of the Council's Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, putting the priest's personality at the center of the liturgy. That never was the intention. The liturgy has its own integrity and its own personality mm. of which priest celebrants are the servant. 
Hmm. I, I want to play something for you, George. Back in 2003, I interviewed our friend, uh, theologian Cardinal Avery Dulles and Archbishop Philip Hannon. Uh, Archbishop Hannon was, of course, present at the council. Uh, Cardinal Dulles was certainly a contemporary of it and a theologian at the time. And I asked Cardinal Dulles what the impact of the liturgical changes of Vatican II were on the people. Listen to this. Well, I think uh, the document is fine uh, mm -hmm. on the, the Constitution, the letter, on the sure. liturgy. If people just read that and observed it, uh, there would be really no problem. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there was a tendency to read it uh, in a way that uh, said the only thing is the sacramental liturgy and everything else uh, should be kind of dismissed. Mm -hmm. And so private devotions, for example, suddenly disappeared and evaporated. Mm -hmm. uh, things that were really nourishing the uh, devotion of the faithful. So things that were slightly marginalized, perhaps, by Vatican II, were suddenly excluded in the name of the council, which they never mm -hmm. intended. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, uh, the, uh, uh, everything was reduced to a minimum and uh, the, uh, uh, the liturgy was somehow interpreted as though it were a kind of a celebration of community mm -hmm. rather than adoration of, of God. And, and, and George, really, this remains the challenge at the heart of the faith today. Community, you know, focus on the community rather than adoration of God in liturgy, including the suppression of the old Latin rite, sort of pitting the traditional against the current. I think one of the signs of vitality in the church today, Raymond, 60 years after the opening of the council, is the return of those devotional practices amplified by newer devotional practices that my old friend Cardinal Dulles mentioned in your interview. Mm. The enormous impact of the Divine Mercy devotion on uh, renewing parish life in the United States is, is one example of that. There's a lot more uh, devotion to the rosary today than I think there was 40 or 50 uh, years ago. The revival of Eucharistic adoration, uh, even in very tough yeah. neighborhoods, in the, in the old cathedral, the Basilica in Baltimore, which is in uh, the middle of a very distressed city, there is now 24-7 Eucharistic adoration. This is, yeah. this is a recovery of exactly what Cardinal Dulles was lamenting properly, the loss of in the immediate post-conciliar period. Yeah, yeah, and Mother Angelica, our own Mother Angelica, had a big hand in all of that, sort of keeping those popular devotions popular, George, that had fallen out of practice. And people thought, oh, they don't do this anymore. She said, oh, no, no, not only do we do it, we do it regularly and we're going to do it in a big way, which I think was an important sort of cultural standard to plant early on. Uh, on Tuesday, Pope Francis presided over a special evening mass to commemorate the opening of the Second Vatican Council. 60 years ago. In his homily, he praised the council for having, quote, rediscovered the living river of tradition without remaining mired in traditions. Yet let us be careful. Both the progressivism that lines up behind the world and the traditionalism or looking backwards that longs for a bygone world are not evidence of love, but of infidelity. Now, George, I, I get how progressivism by its nature lacks fidelity to establish doctrine. But how does traditionalism bespeak infidelity? Uh, it's unclear to me, Raymond, exactly what the Holy Father meant there. It's unclear to me what he means on several occasions. 
Uh, I come back to the brilliant statement of another old friend, Cardinal Francis George, in his mm. uh, first press conference when he became Archbishop of Chicago. And of course, the guy from the Sun-Times or the Tribune or whatever pops up and says, are you a liberal or a conservative? And Cardinal George, who was probably the smartest Catholic bishop in the history of the United States, said the Catholic yeah. Church is not about left or right. It's about true and false. And it would have been useful, it seems to me, to lift that up in Rome on the 60th anniversary of the opening of a council, which, as you rightly noted at the beginning, John XXIII wanted to celebrate as an affirmation of the Church's sacred deposit of faith and a rekindling of the Church's Christ-centered faith in order to get on with evangelizing the world. Yeah. The Pope also blamed, uh, Pope Francis, blamed the temptation to choose sides in an ideological battle on the devil who wants to sow the scandal of division. He said, how often in the wake of the council did Christians prefer to choose sides in the church, not realizing they were breaking their mother's heart? How many times did they prefer to cheer on their own party rather than being servants of all, to be progressive or conservative rather than being brothers and sisters, to be on the right or the left rather than with Jesus? Let us overcome all polarization and preserve our communion, end quote. But what do you make of that, given what we see happening in the church today, George? It's, it's a noble sentiment, and I certainly share it. Uh, I do think there's an awful lot of siloing uh, in, in the church today, but that, that is not uh, helped. That problem of siloing is not resolved or solved by the kind of action that we saw from the Holy See last year in respect of the celebration of the traditional Latin Mass. Why are we punishing people who are going to Mass when the single biggest practical pastoral issue facing the church around the world after the pandemic is getting people back to Mass? This just really doesn't make a lot of sense. No. Uh, I, I want to play something else for you. This is Archbishop Hannon on Vatican II. And this is how uh, the, the Archbishop explained the failure of the laity to embrace the teaching of Vatican II. Listen to this. Basically, uh, I don't think that John, Pope John XXIII thought that this was going to be such an enormous thing. 16 documents. Mm -hmm. Now, and each one of them is very, very weighty. We did not have any time to teach the people because all of a sudden at the end, 1965, everything was supposed to go into effect. Uh, and it was impossible to instruct the people in all these changes. Mm. And that's the reason why, in my opinion, there was this great deal of turmoil. Now, George, you argue in your book the Second Vatican Council was never meant to rupture Catholic doctrine, only to better communicate the unchanging uh, Catholic truths, and that the Church was in the middle of a civilizational crisis. Looking back, though, is the Catholic Church any more relevant today than it was before Vatican II? Uh, I, Archbishop Haddon makes, makes a good point there. Uh, there was a rush to implementation that I think, in retrospect, was very mm -hmm. ill-advised. 
the Archbishop of Krakow, Karol Wojtyla, led a nine-year implementation process in his diocese before he became Pope John Paul II, and nothing was done for four years, while thousands of discussion groups around the diocese, this is under communism, mind you, read the documents right. of Vatican II with the help of a guide provided by the archbishop. That was not done sufficiently, really, just about mm -hmm. any place else. I think, Raymond, the Church has, in the documents of the Second Vatican Council, its teaching that Jesus Christ review, reveals both the face of the Father of Mercies and the truth about our humanity, in its teaching that the Church is a sacrament of the unity of the human race, uh, has developed a message that this postmodern world desperately needs to hear. So yes, I mm -hmm. think the Council's teaching is even more relevant today in a world yeah. of trans ideology and all the rest of it. Last week, the Vatican Synod, the Twitter page, tweeted out the following. Now, this is from Cardinal Mario Gresh. He is the Secretary General of the Synod of Bishops, uh, about to re-examine everything anew in the upcoming year. He said, quote, a correct reception of the Council's ecclesiology is activating such fruitful processes as to open up scenarios that not even the Council had imagined, and in which the action of the Spirit that guides the Church is made manifest. George, this seems awfully like what you were just saying. This is a, and the problem is it's not just Eastern Europe, it's the seat of Catholicism, it's Rome embracing the spirit of Vatican II and basically saying everything's up for grabs. Well, everything isn't up for grabs, Raymond, and that was a singularly unfortunate statement from, from Cardinal Grech. Uh, and it's a misinterpretation of the Council. Uh, in a very, very severe way. Um, this synodal, synodality talk is too often a cover for advancing the Catholic light project. And I think it needs to be called out for that. If we are going to have a genuine discussion about the Catholic future in October of next year, let's look at where the Council has been successfully implemented where there is vibrant evangelization going on, where there are living religious orders. Let's not take Germany as a template for the church of the future, because it manifestly is not. Uh, George, in your book, you write, and I think correctly, um, that Popes John Paul II and Benedict XVI, both major figures present at the Council itself, that they provided the authoritative keys of understanding Vatican II in that 35-year period after the Council. What were the keys to understanding Vatican II, and does the current hierarchy of the Church agree with you? The master key, as I suggested in, in the book, was, the, was provided by the Extraordinary Synod of 1985, which said the Church is a communion of disciples in mission. Friendship with the Lord Jesus is the beginning of the Church. The body of Christ exists for mission in the world. If you read the documents of the, Vatican, of the Second Vatican Council through that lens, you get the living parts of the world Church. I think most of the episcopate of the Church today, certainly in the living parts of the world Church, uh, has grasped that and is getting on with what John Paul II uh, called the new evangelization. But I am not prepared uh, 
to read the Catholic future through the demise of Catholicism in Northwestern Europe. That is just a fundamental mm -hmm. mistake, nor am I prepared to take that, and particularly this German synodal way, which is a complete mm -hmm. fraud in terms of uh, actual yeah. serious theological discussion, as a template for the mm -hmm. universal church. That just cannot happen in oh. October of 2023 oh. in Rome. Well, George, when I read your book, and again, you are you are trying to properly situate the Vatican Council, not only historically, but in the theological evolution as as seen, as you said, the keys to understanding it were furnished by the last two popes, that 35-year span. But it seems we're almost trying to edit that out now and pretend that the Holy Spirit was not operable for the last 35 years through the prophetic teachings of John Paul II and Benedict XVI. The liturgical understanding is being trashed. Uh, John Paul's moral teaching trashed. And Cardinal Mueller last week called it a hermeneutic of rupture, what we're seeing today. Is it? Yeah, I think Cardinal Mueller was right in picking up that phrase of, of Pope Benedict XVI. But again, let's not read the entire world Catholic reality through the prism of what's going on in Rome today. Rome is not the sum total of the Catholic Church. And that stuff is not going on in the living parts of the world church. The deep problem mm -hmm. in Rome is that it doesn't understand this. It does not seem to grasp right now that all-in Catholicism, as you and I have described it before, really mm -hmm. has a chance to convert the world, while Catholic light is a universal failure. That has got to be front and center at any synod next year on the future of the church. George, last month, Pope Francis uh, visited Assisi. It was a gathering of about 1,000 young people from 120 countries at a meeting they called uh, on the new economy. Um, also known as the Economy of Francesco, a 2019 initiative created by Pope Francis to address the world's economic problems. Now, the event featured presentations that question capitalism and present development models. During his keynote speech at the end of the event, Pope Francis spoke of the economics of plants, uh, an initiative uh, or innovative, rather, theme proposed by some of the young participants. Here's what he said. Plants know how to cooperate with the whole surrounding environment. And even when competing, they're actually cooperating for the good of the ecosystem. We learn from the mildness of plants. Their humility and silence can offer us a different style that we urgently need. Good living is the mysticism that the aboriginal peoples teach us to have with the earth." End quote. Why the focus, do you think, on tribal life uh, and uh, pagan tribal life and not Christian civilization as the ideal for society, where the focus is on God and Christ and his church to solve the problems of the youth in the world? Uh, that, that's a good question, Raymond. I, I have to re recall, uh, as you may, my friend Fran Mayer's commentary on that plant uh, discourse in which he said, yes. there are, yeah, okay, there are good plants and then there are weeds, and the weeds tend to <laughs> choke the good plants. So let's not paint this a picture true. of, you know, benign uh, nature here. Uh, yeah. this, this appeal to a kind of uh, Gaia worship is really misplaced, it seems to me. Yes, we are called to be stewards of the environment. Yes, rubbishing the environment is a bad thing to do. But so is providing jobs for people. 
So is tilling the earth so that the earth provides abundance for people. Uh, you know, the Holy Father always talks about, you know, somebody told him that if all arms sales were stopped, uh, everybody in the world would be fed. The problem with feeding the world today is corrupt governments in the third world. It's not the unavailability of food. The Green Revolution has made food abundant throughout the world for the first time in human history. Let's get the bad guys correctly identified here and stop this business about appealing to what are essentially uh, irreligious concepts of nature and its ultimate benignity. In your book, you reference the battle, uh, George, and I think correctly, over the uh, proper interpretation of the council waged by theological reformers who disagreed with whether its teaching constituted a rupture with tradition. Today, as the church continues this two-year synodal uh, evolution uh, accompaniment, the battle lines have shifted and the reformers seem to be seeking to modify church discipline and really calling for an entirely new model of the church. Your thoughts on where we are now, where this is headed? I'm not sure where it's headed, Raymond, but I was in Rome the last week of August, spoke to a number of churchmen from the third world, including some of the new cardinals, and they are simply uninterested in the German agenda for the church or the kind of synodal discussion that you referenced from Cardinal Grech uh, a few moments ago. They're just not interested in this. They are about the business of the new evangelization. And I think mm -hmm. there's going to be a great surprise uh, if and when this synod gathers in Rome next October at the lack of interest in replicating the German catastrophe among the rest of the world church. And perhaps the Germans are going to be the most surprised. Yeah. It, it, it strikes me as sort of a dime store of Vatican III, George. I mean, the way it's constructed, the obvious, you know, uh, trial balloons sent out, uh, and the selection of who is running this agenda. But uh, like you, when you talk, when I talk to cardinals, when I talk to people who, who are going to have to sit there and listen to this, they don't seem to be terribly on board with this agenda. The, the single biggest problem that needs to be addressed between now and next October is the process of that synod. As it is presently proposed, there will be no votes by the participating bishops. There will be, there will be lots of discussion that is then summarized, presumably by people carefully chosen by the synod general secretariat and Cardinal Grech. Those summaries will then be given to the pope, who will then do whatever he pleases. This is not synodality in any meaningful sense of the term. Uh, so mm. that process really needs to be reexamined, and above all, those bishops are going to be, have to be allowed to vote on propositions, which are the normal way a synod assembly makes its judgments known. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, but the, I have to say, after reading your book, George, and it, I think it's important for people to read it now, because Vatican II is being invoked as uh, the reason and the cause for this synodality we're seeing underway. And just as, as we end here, do you see a link here between this process and what Vatican II was calling for? 
Uh, not really, Raymond. Um, it, it, it always takes the church a hundred years to digest the meaning of, of an ecumenical council. We're still in the middle, in the midst of digesting the meaning of Vatican II. Uh, to sanctify the world, the vital legacy of Vatican II by George Weigel is available now at bookstores everywhere and online, including EWTN's religious catalog. Uh, the timing could not be better, George, uh, considering how Vatican II is in the air again and, uh, you know, on every top of everyone's minds in Rome, certainly. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Raymond. And a group of nuns has gathered to record a new CD of music dedicated to the Blessed Sacrament. The sisters have teamed with De Montfort Music, Sophia Music Group, to bring us Adoration from Carmel, Eucharistic hymns from the Carmelite Sisters of the Most Sacred Heart of Los Angeles. A member of their community, Sister Gianna Heinemann, is here to tell us more about it. Sister Gianna, thank you for being here. Uh, we'll get to the new CD in a moment, but uh, tell me about your community, the Carmelite Sisters of the Most Sacred Heart of Los Angeles. Um, give me a sense of the community and its apostolates. Well, our community was um, founded from, our mother founders came from Mexico during the religious persecution in the 1920s and 30s. And she came to Los Angeles and uh, wanted to find a safe haven for her sisters and so we have been here for 95 years, um, and we are a, a bit of a unique version of Carmel, as you may imagine. We're semi-cloistered, meaning that we, uh, we do have our life of Carmel, our life of prayer, uh, but we have active works also, whereas other cloistered Carmelite communities, they don't leave their monastery. Um, but we have the traditional life of prayer, and then we serve in education, mm -hmm. in uh, retreat work, and in health care for the elderly. Mm. Now, Sister Gianna, obviously, uh, a, a part of your service is music and the chant, and I know that plays an important role in your liturgical lives. How important is music to the community, and how does music reflect your devotion to the Eucharist? That's a great question. Well, we begin our day, um, our day is ordered, or we call it our orarium, is beginning with music and ending with music. Um, in the morning, our sister uh, who rings the rising bell wakes us. And so the very first thing coming out of our mouths and as we exit out of sleep is song, and she's calling us to the chapel. So. Um, we begin before the Blessed Sacrament, and we end before the Blessed Sacrament at night, um, praying Compline together. Mm -hmm. So singing is of the essence um, of, our, of our life um, in the Mass, in Eucharistic Adoration, and um, the Divine Office. Mm. The new so. CD is called Adoration from Carmel Eucharistic Hymns. Uh, it was recorded in your own St. Joseph's Chapel. And it consists of both traditional and contemporary arrangements. Um, how are these 16 selections chosen, sister? And what's the significance of these pieces of music that made their way onto the CD? Well, we wanted to compile a, a selection of, of music that's really flowing from our prayer, um, what we do every day out of our um, devotion to the Lord in the Blessed Sacrament and 
Um, especially with our community, we have a focus on devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. So mm. what you'll hear on this CD is um, just the ancient tried and true uh, songs of love to the Lord and the Blessed Sacrament, like Tantu Mergo, Panis Angelicus, Soul of My Savior. Mm. Um, and then we also, we thought about the people in the National Eucharistic Revival just picturing them sitting in the pew before the Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. And we wrote songs with them in mind and with the Lord in mind and all the graces he wants to pour mm. out upon us during this time. So we have some some of the ancient and the well-known and then a mm. few that are born from our own prayer. I love it. Here's a bit of the Carmelite Sisters of the Most Sacred Heart, Adoration from Carmel. Listen. So beautiful. This is not the sisters' first CD, though. Uh, the community recorded its first album back in 1996. Sister Gianna, what's special about this new CD? And how are listeners reacting? Well, what's special about this new CD is uh, it's not original in the sense of creative. It's ordinary to our Carmelite way of life. But what we're allowing you to do is step inside of our chapel and, um, as it were, sit in the pew with us um, or kneel and adore the Lord. So we just the way we recorded this CD is unique to our um, other albums that we've done. We recorded in our chapel and the Lord in the Blessed Sacrament was there. And um, it's just an authentic a rendering of, of our way of life. Mm. And I really love that every once in a while you can hear a, a rosary bead huh. jingle because we're getting into the music and we're singing and just loving the Lord in praise and together mm. with our voices. Well, I, I hope the audio engineer agrees with you, sister. You know, sometimes they get touchy about that. <laughs> You know, the little tings and the clicks happening in the background. But we'll leave it there. Adoration from Carmel. Eucharistic hymns from the Carmelite Sisters of the Most Sacred Heart of Los Angeles is available now at music outlets everywhere and online. For more information, you can go to sophiamusicgroup.com. Sister Gianna, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. That is all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for watching. I have a big announcement next week. Be sure to tune in. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.